0: sort of massive business. It's unbelievable. Well, what happened is in 1976, Steve Jobs, who was friends with Steve Wozniak, looked at this personal computer, which by the way was made out of wood and had the little typewriter keys that had been taken off of a a, a typewriter. And Jobs looked at it and Jobs was really the visionary. He was less the guy who was all about, you know, the technical engineering pieces of it. And he looked at it and he thought, you know what, there's something here. And so Jobs is really the one that for the next 10 years took Apple from this little, you know, garage nothing company all the way to a multi-million dollar company. And really it was all sort of based upon innovation. And it was based upon, you know, an easier operating system. They were one of the ones that sort of first implemented a mouse into a computer, right? Some of you guys were around for that. And they're like, wow, there's a mouse, you know, so cool. Anyway, so innovative. And, uh, but it was in 1983 when they did it. Well, in the mid-80s, basically Apple had sort of, you know, sort of, I don't know, leveled off a little bit. And so they went and hired the CEO for PepsiCo, or this Pepsi company, and Steve Jobs met with the guy, and he basically said, hey, do you want to keep selling sugar water to kids, or do you want to change the world, right? How do you say no to that? Yeah? And so the guy left, you know, Pepsi came uh, to Apple, and sure enough, you know, the company was doing great, but there began to be sort of this tension between Steve Jobs and the other leadership of the company, as he was kicked out. Right, So Steve Jobs, who many of you know, was kicked out. Now, the good news is they bought him out, and with his buyout, he had enough money to buy Pixar. Okay, that's a pretty good buyout, right? Enough money to buy Pixar. And so for the next 10 years, he worked with Pixar, and he worked with you know, sort of his own technology companies. But in the mid-'90s, Apple had started to sort of tail off and really lose revenue, and it was really struggling. And so they brought Steve Jobs back on. And when they brought Steve Jobs back on, he was really the visionary. He's really the one that looked at the market And he said, we've got to stand against all of that stuff, and we've got to stand for some very particular things if we're going to be great, right? And so as you well know, over the course of now, you know, the last 10 years, Apple has skyrocketed to the place where it's this fantastic, truly amazing company. But but it's really because of Steve Jobs' visionary sort of perspective on what was wrong and what needed to happen to make it right. Now, I'm going to read a list here very quickly of the values um, of Apple. So I'm going to read these off. These are values. In the same way that Seven Hills Fellowship has vision, mission, and values that that sort of determine how we we operate, so does Apple. Here are theirs. We believe that we're on the face of the earth to make great products. And so essentially what they're saying is we believe that we're here for something more than just ourselves. We're here for for something bigger than ourselves. We want to make great products. Next one, we believe in the simple, not the complex. One of the things that Apple's been fantastic at. I don't, again, most of you don't know this, but you know, in 1990, if you walked into a regular computer lab at your college, you had to hit Shift, F3, PQRSTUV in order to like, make anything happen. And if you walked into a Mac lab around the same time, all you had to do was use your little mouse and click on stuff, and it was so easy. It was so simple, right? Next one. We believe that we need to own and control the primary technologies behind the products we make. Part of that's to make money, as some of you guys are fully aware of. Some of it also is to make sure that quality control is where they want it to be. We participate only in markets where we can make a significant contribution. In other words, we're not going to go into crowded markets. We're not going to go into markets where good stuff's already happening. We're going to go into markets where we know we can make a significant contribution, right? Like, you know, iTunes, right? And an iPad and a PowerBook, all those things. We believe in saying no, So we believe in saying no to thousands of projects so we can really focus on the few that are truly important and meaningful to us. I love that one. Basically what happens is all of these companies, big companies, Xerox and Amazon, all these companies, so often they get spread so thin that uh, they really lose their focus on the thing that they're best at. And what Apple is saying here is we want to say no to lots and lots and lots of different things in order to say yes to the things that are the most meaningful to us. We're working even to do that as a church here at Seven Hills Fellowship. We believe in deep collaboration and cross-pollination of our groups, which allow us to innovate in a way that others cannot. And finally, we don't settle for anything less than excellence in every group in the company, and we have the self-honesty to admit when we're wrong and the courage to change. So these are these values. And what's interesting is these values are always, they always stand in opposition to something else, Right? Values always stand in opposition to seeing either the way that the company has been operating, that it needs to not operate anymore, or the values stand in opposition to the way that the rest of the climate operates, and they say, you know what, we got to quit doing this, and we need to do that, right? And so what you'll realize, if you look at any movement, any reformation, whether it's a business reformation, whether it's a uh, sociological reformation or a religious reformation, there's always those same elements of standing against something and standing for something. Again, whether that's Apple or Starbucks or Amazon or the Protestant Reformation, every revolution every revolution has certain beliefs and values that drive them. Brad mentioned earlier that uh, the Protestant Reformation had these big five values called the solas, right? And I'm going to read those five really quickly. We're actually only going to talk about three because I didn't want to make the sermon too long. It's just that simple. Anyway, but here are the, here are the five very quickly. So You can leave that up there, Sam, but I'm going to read the five, and then we'll jump into Soli Deo Gloria. But Sola Scriptura, we're going to talk about that today. Sola Fides, we're not going to talk about that today, but it means by faith alone. Sola Gratia, we are going to talk about that. Solus Christus, we're not going to talk about that, but what it means is you're saved by faith in Christ alone, not by works. Lest any man should boast, kind of sounds familiar. And then Soli Deo Gloria, which is where we are going to begin So we're going to focus on those three, but we're going to begin with soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone, glory to God alone, or another way maybe of phrasing it that might actually be slightly more theologically correct, which would be glory to God above all, above all else, right? And so let me start with a story. Uh, There was a man who was a French pastor, his name was Jean-Baptiste Massillon, And uh, he was uh, basically very widely known in the 17th century for being sort of this fiery preacher who told it like it was, whether people liked it or not. And he was so popular with the people, however, that Louis XIV said, I want this guy on my team. And so he invited him to sort of be this guest preacher at Versailles for Advent. And then he liked him so much that he invited him to be the chaplain to the royal court for Louis Louis XIV. And so Massillon comes on and he is... You know, the chaplain for Louis XIV, but it becomes quickly apparent that even though he's, you know, sort of so compelling and he's so engaging, that he also is going to tell it like it is. And Louis XIV begins to kind of be a little bit less thrilled about that. And Louis XIV leaves him in the position, uh, but he quits going to hear his sermons because he doesn't like being convicted. In fact, Louis XIV said this I've heard many great orators and have been highly pleased with them, but whenever I hear you, I go away displeased with myself for I see my own character. In other words, quit telling me about how I am messed up. You know what I mean? I'd rather you tell me how great I am. I'd rather you tell me you know, how things are going just great. So Louis XIV was uh, this you know, super powerful French king. He actually held that position for 72 years, longer than any other French king in history. He was you know, wealthy. His court was opulent. And uh, as he moved towards his death, he basically said, hey, I'm planning my own funeral. And he said, my funeral is going to be this. We're going to meet in Notre Dame. So Notre Dame is in Paris, you know, on the edge of the Seine. And he said, here's what I want. I want everybody, you know, to sort of gather, everybody who's anybody to gather there in Notre Dame. And I want my casket to be a solid gold casket, right? And I want it to be beautiful. I want it to be ornate. I want it to be just the most opulent, you know, service ever. And not only that, but I want the entire interior of Notre Dame to be completely dark, except for one candle, which I want to be by the head of my casket. And so that was his sort of request. He planned the whole thing. And then when he passed away, Jean-Baptiste Massillon was in charge of doing the funeral service. And so he did exactly as King Louis XIV desired. At the funeral, thousands of people waited in hushed silence as they peered at the exquisite casket that held the mortal remains of their monarch, illuminated by this single flickering candle. But as he, Massillon, began this funeral oration. And to the surprise of them all, he slowly reached down and snuffed out the candle representing the king's greatness, right? Probably get beheaded for that kind of thing. But, he, but Massillon reaches down, he snuffs out the candle, and he says, only God is great. Only God is great, man. Like, that's pretty dramatic, right? And, and it was risky, too. But what he's saying is, he said glory should go to God alone, Right? Again, here's this fiery prophetic preacher who says, glory is God alone. He's the one to whom we need to give glory above all. See, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they were chosen not because of their goodness, not because of their greatness, but they were chosen. In fact, what the Bible says is they were chosen because they were small, because they were kind of insignificant. They were chosen by grace, right? And uh, and ultimately, by the time that Jesus came on the scene, the religious people, these people we call Pharisees, you know, they had sort of forgotten that they were chosen by grace, right, and ultimately for God's glory. And they started thinking, well, the reason that God chose us is because we're pretty good, right? We're obeying the law, we're doing good stuff. And then even in the early church, we see that, you know, after Jesus had brought this message of salvation, you know, by trusting in Him alone, we see that already the Galatian church had started sort of saying, look, we're saved again by what we do, by keeping the rules, by being basically good enough. And Paul had to come and say, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not how you're saved, right? And so we always default back to this works righteousness paradigm, and that's what Luther ran into in the 16th century. He came into a a context where the Catholic Church was basically saying faith plus works equals salvation. And under each of those paradigms, whenever it's faith plus works, faith plus works, it's 50% God, it's 50% me, then God gets some glory, right? Right? But so do we, right? We get plenty of glory when 50% of the salvation process is ultimately up to us. If, however, Ephesians 2 is true, for you have been saved by grace, right, alone, it's not by works lest any man should boast, then if we're saved by grace alone because it's a gift of God, then God gets the glory alone, right? Only God is great. Let me read a chunk of verses about the glory of God, and there are lots more just going to jump in here. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? When you get up in the morning, do all to the glory of God. When you do your homework, do all to the glory of God. When you're involved in a relationship with somebody, right, do all to the glory of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, Give glory to God, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God for and ever, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Only God is great. He's great above all, right? Glory to God. So what? Here's what Piper has to say, John Piper, for those of you familiar with him. This is what Piper has to say about the importance of glory to God and the highest, that God is great. He says this in his book, Preaching the Cross. When the glory of God is the treasure of our lives, we will not lay up treasures on earth, but spend them for the spread of his glory. We will not covet, but we will overflow with liberality. We will not crave the praise of men, but forget ourselves in praising God. We will not be mastered by sinful, sensual pleasures, but sever their root by the power of a superior promise." We will not nurse a wounded ego or cherish a grudge or nurture a vengeful spirit, but will hand over our cause to God and bless those who hate us. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. Let me read that one more time. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. What would it look like if we were a church that treasured the glory of God above all things, right? Then all of a sudden, your work is for the glory of God. All of a sudden, your relationship is for the glory of God. All of a sudden, your child-rearing is for the glory of God. All of a sudden, your suffering is for the glory of God, right? What would it look like if we were a church that truly pursued and was passionate about the glory of God? Again, that was a, a radical... Uh, paradigm-shifting truth, not only for Martin Luther, who's, who risked his life to proclaim these truths, right, but also for Masianus, as he reached down and snuffed out that candle and said, only God is great, right? Next value that we're going to look at today of the Reformation or the next sola is this, this uh, sola scriptura, which, of course, means by scripture alone. Again, and maybe a better way to say it is, um, is uh, maybe it's by scripture above all else, But in the Catholic Church in the 16th century, the official position of the church was that church authority um, or church history or the pope was equal to scripture. And so the way that you determine truth and right and wrong and goodness was basically the pope and the popes that went before him plus scripture. And those two things are sort of equal and that's how we determine what's true. But in reality, what ends up happening is when it's sort of this 50-50 proposition, really one ends up winning out. And in this case, what ended up winning out was that uh, church tradition and the Pope ended up being more powerful than Scripture. Now, the Reformers, on the other hand, and again, that's John Huss and uh, John Calvin and Wycliffe and John Knox and Martin Luther and all these other guys, said, no, it has to be exactly the opposite. It has to be that Scripture is above all else. Here's a quote from John Calvin. The difference between us and the papists, that is the Catholics, is that they do not think that the church can be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the word of God. In other words, he's saying really what ends up happening is the church is over the word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently subjects herself to the word of God and that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. In other words, the real way that the truth is held onto and is protected is when we hold up Scripture above all else. Scripture is our ultimate authority for life and faith and for the church. In other words, it's not the Pope, it's not church councils, it's not the elders at Seven Hills Fellowship, right? It's not human reason, but the Bible is our ultimate authority for life and for faith. Now, of course there are other authorities, right? Of course your parents are an authority. Of course the government is an authority. Of course there are teachers and bosses, but we believe that Scripture is the ultimate authority for what it is that we should believe and what it is that we should feel and what it is that we should do. We believe in sola scriptura that it should be all about scriptural authority for our lives. Um, in here we quote a guy named Tim Keller a lot. He's a pastor in, in New York City in Manhattan. Um, some of you may not know this, but before he was married, his wife Kathy Keller was on her way to studying to become a PCUSA uh, pastor. And so she basically said she grew up and she believed that she was saved by her faith in Jesus But she didn't think the Bible was actually true. Like, she just thought it was fables and sort of parables and some stories, and it was kind of good when you had a wedding or a funeral, but other than that, it was not particularly meaningful. I started reading a book of hers recently, and in her book, she addresses her view of Scripture, and let me, a current view of Scripture. She says this, "'I accept and embrace the Bible as the Word of God, inspired and without error.'" This was not always the case. It wasn't until college that I met intelligent believers who accepted the Bible as God's Word. I wrestled with the authority and inspiration of the Bible for several years. For me, exploring the fields of higher biblical and textual criticism revealed the fundamental accuracy of the canonical text. In other words, as I sort of got deeper into all these sort of, you know, super deep uh, intellectual theoretical studies, she said what actually happened is I began to see that uh, Scripture really... Made sense and it was consistent. She goes on to say, yet it was actually a very simple question that resolved the deeper issue of authority. Jesus trusted the inspiration of the Old Testament and promised the inspiration of the New Testament. He quoted Scripture at every point in his life, including his words on the cross from Psalm 22. Jesus bled Scripture. If I trusted Jesus to be who he said he was, Why wouldn't I also trust his view of the authority and inerrancy of the scriptures? This was a game-changing realization for me, and it changed a lot more. Now that i trusted God's word as truth, written to aid my flourishing and not to diminish it, my choices needed to be submitted to scripture. When my choices and God's commands clashed, he won. Right? Pretty powerful statement. And actually, this is from a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. So here is um, a very intelligent woman writing about gender roles and what scripture has to say. And in particular, she says, it's written for my flourishing, right? One of our key values here at Seven Hills Fellowship is biblical fidelity, biblical fidelity. And what we mean by that is that we really believe the Bible is true and has authority to tell us what to do, especially when we do not like it, right? It's easy to obey scripture when you kind of agree with it, right? But what's really hard is to submit to scripture when it rubs you the wrong way, right? And there's a lot of different ways in which scripture can rub us the wrong way. But in Kathy Keller's words, when my choices and God's commands clashed, he won, right? Sola Scriptura, right? What, what's our rule for life and for faith, for living, for the church? Sola Scriptura. The third sola we're going to talk about today is called sola gratia, or in other words, by grace alone, by grace alone. I'm going to read a chunk of verses really quickly, and then we're going to have a pretty cool little um, video clip that I'm going to give you. But just listen to these verses taken from Ephesians chapter one. And again, I could have picked and chosen from tons and tons of different verses. But here's what Ephesians one says. Paul, again, is writing to this church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What those verses in Ephesians mean, what grace always means, is that we're given what we do not deserve, right? We're given what we don't deserve, right? That's what Jesus did. Jesus gives us his righteousness. Jesus gives us forgiveness. Jesus, by his death, grants us the ability to be adopted as daughters And son, Jesus gives us all of these things, God gives us all these things through Jesus by grace alone that we don't deserve, and yet we get them. That's such a big piece of the gospel. Now, I'm going to show a clip here in a second. And this clip is uh, basically based upon a team, basketball team, a high school boys basketball team called Gainesville. And Gainesville actually is in Texas. And uh, this is a story about them getting something that they didn't deserve but was life-changing, and, uh, and it was very much an act of grace. And so, if we can play this little video.
1: Three, one, two, three. If you're a fan of high school basketball, you're not alone. But if you're a fan of the Gainesville Tornadoes in Gainesville, Texas, then you are alone.
0: Usually, our fan base was close to zero. My parents came uh, one game, but they didn't come to the other ones because they didn't have time. The other students at
1: Gainesville don't come to the games either, mostly because they can't get out. This is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders. And one of the few perks here for very good behavior is a chance to leave the prison a few times a year to play basketball. They play against private schools like Vanguard College Prep in Waco. And it was before that recent matchup that two Vanguard players announced they weren't going to play against a team with no fans. No one likes playing in an empty gym. But isn't that supposed to be a good thing for you? You don't have the other fans cheering against you? I guess, but it just seems weird, you know. It just didn't seem right. So, before their home game against Gainesville, Hudson Bradley and Ben Martinson asked some of the Vanguard fans for a favor. Gainesville To cheer for Gainesville instead. The Gainesville players had no idea what was happening. They walked onto the court to find their own signs of support, their own cheerleaders, even their own fan section. Half the crowd was assigned to cheer for Gainesville. But then as it went on, everybody just kind of got so into it. Nobody was cheering for you? (laughs) Everyone was cheering for them. I mean, every time they scored, the gym was just lit up with cheering and clapping, and everyone was on their feet. This is not what I've ever seen sports be. I think in a way, this is kind of how sports should be. It, it just kind of showed me the real impact that encouragement and support for anybody can make. Hudson says we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. And for that, the Gainesville players can't thank those boys enough. It's something I won't forget. When I'm an old man, I'm just gonna be thinking about this. I'll remember that for the rest of my life.
0: So that's just a neat little story of a group of, you know, young men who are in juvenile detention, right? I mean, what do they deserve? I guess they did something bad enough that they deserve to be in juvenile detention. But what they got was grace, right? They got fans and cheerleaders and signs um, and people who believed in them and pulled for them, right? And, And there's probably a sense in which that's the most powerful thing that came out of the Reformation. I think maybe the most powerful thing that came out of the Reformation is that we're not saved by good works, right? And we're not even condemned by our bad works, but rather we're given grace in Jesus, right? We're given what we don't deserve. We're given a party, right? We're given adoption. We're given holiness. We're given blamelessness. We're given redemption. We're given forgiveness. All these things by grace, not because we deserve them right this morning we're celebrating the lord's supper and so there there are tables around the room with bread and wine on this side and bread and grape juice on that side and what these tables represent is the gospel and what the gospel is always about is this idea that you're given what you don't deserve you're given christ's righteousness so that when god looks at you he doesn't see your record he sees christ's record right it's grace you know, this meal of bread and wine is always a picture of the gospel. It's, it's, again, it's grace. It's that God looks at you, right? And instead of seeing you as an enemy, he sees you as a daughter or a son adopted into his family. You didn't deserve that, but it's a gift of grace. That's what this meal means. It's forgiveness. It's adoption. It's righteousness that wasn't yours at all, but it's been given to you anyway. And so what I would ask you to do this morning is I would ask you to sit back And and to to let the weight of grace and the weight of the gospel sink in, right? Your tendency might be to think, well, I'm pretty good, therefore I can come to this table. If that's you, I would encourage you not to come to the table, actually. I would encourage you to think about um, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to deal with the reality of your rebellion against God. Maybe it's in your head and your thought more than your deeds, right? But if you're the other person, who thinks, man, there's no way I can come to this table because I'm too bad, then I would say this meal is actually for you if you can believe that because of Jesus, God has given you what you didn't deserve, which is righteousness, a declaration of not guilty, a declaration of innocence, right? A declaration that you're my daughter, I love you, there's nothing you can do to make me love you anymore or any less than I do right now, not because of your record, but because I've chosen to make you my daughter. I've chosen to make you my son. You're forgiven. You can't lose that. And so this meal today is only for those of us who have come to the point of saying uh, that I trust in Christ alone, by grace alone. Let me take a moment. Let me read the words of institution, and then we'll pray, and I'll invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. until he comes. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I pray, as always, that as we take this bread and wine, that your voice of forgiveness, your declaration of righteousness, your declaration of not guilty, your declaration that we are your daughters and sons because of our faith in Jesus, I pray that your voice would drown out every other voice, I pray, Father, that your voice would drown out the voice of Satan who accuses us and says, you've done it too many times. That thing you did was too bad. You knew better. I pray that your voice would shout out Satan. Father, I pray that your voice declaring innocence and not guilty and righteousness and adoption, I pray that your voice would drown out our own voices that struggle to believe that you could possibly love us. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't listen to our own voices, but rather that we would listen to your voice as you shout to us through this meal of bread and wine, that we are forgiven and that we are loved. And so, Father, we pray all these things today through your Son, Jesus, our eternal Passover Lamb. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.